going to get going, I think. I, I said something to David Brown last week afterwards. I kept hearing, like, what I thought was angels singing or something yeah. next door. But uh, he's playing, and they're singing. So I'll try not to get totally distracted and you know, me out because it sounds good over there. We're going to go ahead and start reviewing from last week and then jump right into our new content for tonight. Okay. So last week we started with Jesus, and we talked about the fact that the promised Messiah had finally arrived. The promised one was here, and we talked about three reasons why we can be confident that Jesus truly was the Messiah, and I won't obviously go into all of those details, but the fact that Jesus alone fulfilled 300 plus Messianic prophecies but we talked about the incredible odds of one man fulfilling just eight of those prophecies, let alone 300 plus. The second thing was that Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be one with the Father. And thirdly, the stamp of approval from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism. And that sort of ushered in the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, and he started with this endorsement from the other two members of the Trinity. So we can be confident that Jesus truly was the Messiah. The key events, so many events we could have talked about, but we kind of broke them into three main categories. The first was the incarnation, God in flesh with us, Jesus. No longer pre-incarnate appearances of Christ, but him actually here in the flesh, walking on planet Earth. We talked about the virgin birth, the fact that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He did not have an earthly father. Joseph sort of stepped in, obviously, as a father figure, but Jesus had an earthly mother but no no earthly father. And then miracles, beginning with the wedding at Cana, turning water into wine, all the way through to his resurrection from the dead. Key, key relationships, there were two that we talked about. One was that Israel rejects Jesus as Savior and King. Obviously, this was not every single individual, every single Jew on the face of the earth, but as a nation, uh, Israel chose Barabbas over Jesus, and they crucified him. And in doing so, rejected Jesus, the second member of the Trinity. Remember, they've already rejected God the Father in the way they treated the prophets, ending with John the Baptist, and now they've rejected Jesus, the Son of God. The second key relationship was salvation is offered. Jesus' atoning work on the cross paid the penalty for our sin and bridged that chasm that began way back in the Garden of Eden between a righteous and holy God and sinful fallen man. And because of Jesus' shed blood, now we had access to God. And we talked about the veil and the significance of that torn veil from top to bottom. We can now boldly approach the throne because of Jesus' shed blood. We moved right in to Stephen from um, the person of Jesus to the person of Stephen. We talked about how he was one of the first deacons, uh, not a disciple, not an apostle, but a deacon. He was repeatedly described as a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. The key event was um, his becoming the first Christian martyr, the first believer to lose his life for the sake of the gospel. We talked about the scenario there in Acts where he's sharing and, and, and proclaiming Christ, and the men of his day could not stand his wisdom. They could not cope with the wisdom with which he spoke, and they couldn't stand the Holy Spirit's empowering with which he ministered. They hire false uh, witnesses 
to you know, levy these accusations that Stephen's speaking against Moses, speaking against the law. He's dragged before the Sanhedrin. And, and the, the members of the Sanhedrin say to him, is this so? Is this really the deal? And rather than begging for his life, turning tail and running, he delivers what I still think is one of the most amazing sermons in all of Scripture, detailing Israel's history from Abraham through the prophets to David and even to present time, ending with the accusation that that these men in the Sanhedrin were just like their fathers who had persecuted every prophet before Jesus and had the, basically the, the blood of Jesus on their hands. And they can't stand it. They're dragging him out to stone him. Before they do so, he sees Jesus seated, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And as he's losing his life, he forgives the very ones who are taking it. The key result, excuse me, the key relationship was Israel's rejection of God the Holy Spirit. Again, pockets of believers, obviously, uh, within the nation Israel, but as a nation, as a whole, they've now rejected God the Holy Spirit. So they've rejected God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we see a bit of a turn coming in the next two individuals from the nation Israel to Gentiles. And we'll talk more about that. So from Stephen, we're going to move straight into Peter. Now, I know that chronologically, Stephen and Peter seem a little bit out of order. The reason I put Stephen first is because Stephen's ministry was obviously cut short by his stoning, and Peter's ministry continued on much longer than that. And so that's why I kind of switched him. It, it might seem a little odd to you, but Peter, we, we were introduced to Peter before Stephen, and then Stephen, and then there's more Peter after that. So that's why the switch. What do you think of when you think of Peter? When I say Peter, what do you just holler out things? What do you think of? The rock. What else? Walking on the water. Cantankerous. Impulsive. ADHD. Um, what else? <laughs> ADHD. I love that. Um, any other thoughts? What did he do for a living? Fisherman. Fisherman. Um, Ms. Rose said, walked on water. Uh, what did he do in the Garden of Gethsemane? Anybody remember? Chopped off the ear of the high priest's servant. What did he do after that? In front of the fire. Denied Christ three times. Right. So we think of all of these things. One of the things we're going to talk about tonight, he was one of the first disciples to audibly proclaim that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. So he got some things wrong, but he got a lot of things right. So seven quick little details about Peter. You don't have to write all these down. Most of you guys know this anyway, but I'm just going to tick them off kind of quickly. First, Peter was one of the original disciples, one of the original 12 called by God, by Jesus, and he was one of the first called as well. Second, he later became an apostle. Now, in evangelical circles, sometimes people, we find, will interchange these two terms, disciple and apostle, and there's a little bit of confusion, and we kind of act like they're the same thing. They actually have different meanings and different functions. A disciple uh, can be defined as someone who is a follower of or a student of. So a disciple of Christ would be a student or follower of Christ. So in Jesus' case, that could, uh, that could apply to the original 12 that he called, which we tend to call the disciples, uh, the original 12. It could also apply to anyone, really, in Jesus' day who was following him, who was a student of him. It could even be applied to us today as followers of Christ. So disciple, student of, follower of. 
the, an apostle was a little different. An apostle was someone who was sent out for a particular purpose. So the idea of kind of someone on a mission. So the idea is Jesus didn't need apostles while he was still here. He needed people that were willing to let him pour himself into so they could learn from him. Then when he died, was buried, resurrected, and ascended back into heaven with, the, with God the Father, then he needed apostles to be sent out to spread the message you know, to all the world. So that's kind of the reason for the two different terms. So who were apostles? What, does anybody know what the requirement was in Scripture to be considered an apostle? Yeah. The yeah. risen Lord, right. And so uh, a lot of people are like, well, Paul didn't really see Jesus, you know, in the upper room or, you know, he had an encounter with Jesus that we're going to talk about. And Jesus identifies himself in that encounter as, I am Jesus. So that was an encounter with Jesus. But the, uh, the apostles were the original 12 minus Judas. We know Judas was out of the picture before Jesus rose from the grave. So the original 12 became apostles. In Acts 1, we learned that a guy named Matthias, M-A-T-T-H-I-A-S, not Matthew, I'm not just saying Matthew incorrectly, Matthias was selected by the apostles to be number 12 to kind of fill Judas's spot, so to speak. And then later on in Acts, we'll talk about later tonight, that um, uh, Paul became number 13. So basically, these were the apostles sent out. So um, if you hear someone, you know, not to be obnoxious, but if you hear someone kind of throwing those terms around, you can say, actually, there is a difference. So um, Peter became an apostle. Number three, Jesus changed Peter's name from Simon to Cephas, which was Aramaic for the word rock, or... Peter, which was Greek for the word rock. Both terms meant rock. So Jesus was the one who changed Peter's name from Simon. Number four, some of you all mentioned this, Peter was bold, eager, impetuous, often acted or spoke before he thought about what he was about to do. And uh, in Matthew 16, he rebuked Jesus. So, you know, he would just kind of get ahead of himself and, and just start talking and whatever came out, came out. And I don't know anybody like that. But it got him into trouble sometimes, and even to the point of rebuking his Savior. Peter had the distinct honor, along with um, James and John, of being part of Jesus' inner circle. We know Jesus selected 12 disciples, but you know, even smaller than that were the three that were sort of invited into the more intimate details of Jesus' ministry. And so Peter, James, and John were in that circle. So he was privy to things that maybe the other disciples were not. He also, Peter also provided the first-hand account for the events of Jesus' ministry that were recorded in the book of Mark. A lot of people think that Mark was a disciple or an apostle or a deacon. He was none of those, but he gleaned his information, his first-hand account, or his second-hand account, I guess, of Jesus' ministry through Peter. And, you know, we know that God's Word is inspired, so it was not that Peter sat down and, and, you know, Mark just dictated it. But that's how he learned of what had taken place for things that he might not have been present for. So he, Peter provided that firsthand account for John Mark. And then lastly, Peter was one of the first disciples, we'll talk more about this in a second, to call Jesus the Son of the living God, the Messiah. Others may have recognized it, but he was the first to verbalize it. And so jot these, I will have you jot these down, these three references Mark 8, 29, Luke 9, 20, so Mark 8, 29, Luke 9, 20, and Matthew 16, 13 to 19. 
And somebody's going to read that Matthew passage. Who's got? Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. In verse 18 of that passage, Jesus says, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. I would propose to you that Jesus did not say, you are Peter, and upon you, young man, I will build my church. Even though Peter's name was Rock, it was not Peter that Jesus was building his church upon. It was Peter, the Rock's confession of faith. The fact that Peter recognized that Jesus was the son of the living God, the Messiah. That confession was to be the cornerstone of Jesus' church. So, based on this passage and what I just said, was Peter supposed to be the head of the, of the church? No. Despite what the Catholic Church says, the Catholic Church believes that Peter, based on these passages that I had y'all jot down, particularly this Matthew passage, that Peter was the head of the church, that he was the very first pope, and that he had authority and preeminence above all the other disciples and apostles. Even Peter himself did not claim this position. Uh, later on in Acts, in Acts chapter 10, God calls Peter to minister to an official, an officer, in the Roman army named Cornelius. And Peter travels to Cornelius' house, and Cornelius is so excited that Peter's actually coming to his house when he arrives he greets Peter, falls down, and begins to worship him. And Peter says, get up, man, get up. He says, I, too, am just a man. So Peter did not claim any supremacy or, you know, sort of a supernatural uh, abilities above and beyond the other disciples and apostles. He knew his place, and he knew, he knew, Peter knew, who the head of the church was. The only one worthy to be called the head of the church is the one who gave his life shed his blood to sanctify it. And that was Jesus Christ. It's not a pastor. It's not a deacon. It's not an elder. It's not a chairman of the Board of Finance. Do I sound like Ross Marion right now? Um, <laughs> nobody. Not a charter member. Not a long-standing pillar in the community member. Jesus alone is the head of the church. The, the church at large and the local church. He is still the head of Wake Chapel Christian Church. So, key events in the life of Peter. Two big ones. The first one I'm going, to, I'm going to spend a good amount of time on because this is really the first time we're being introduced to the Holy Spirit in a, in a different way. And so the first key event here is the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. Before Jesus left this earth, he promised his followers that he would send a comforter. You know, they were all sad when, you know, there's still a lot of confusion. He would tell them, I'm leaving. And they're like, what? And he's like, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And there was a lot of confusion, but he says, don't worry, I'm going to send a comforter. It, who has John 14, 25 to 26? These things have I spoken unto you, 
being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Thank you. Just in this passage, we already can pick up a couple of the uh, functions and responsibilities of the Holy Spirit. Your translation, Steve, says a comforter. Uh, the, the New American Standard says a helper. Uh, the Holy Spirit would be a comforter, a helper. He would teach them things. He would bring to their remembrance things that Jesus had already taught them. So this promised one, they're, they're waiting, and Jesus ascends back into heaven, and some time passes, and 120 believers are hanging out in an upper room praying, and the Holy Spirit shows up in a big way, just as promised. Who has Acts 2, 1-4? The day of Pentecost was fully come, and they were all one accord in one place, suddenly there came a sound from heaven, like a rushing mighty wind, and filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, that sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues, and the Spirit gave them utterance. Thank you. So they're all together, they're in they're in unity, unity in that they're all together, and they're also in unity of spirit, praying, and a, a violent wind. Fire, like tongues of fire. You folks have probably all seen pictures of what we, you know, artist rendition of this. But the idea of a little piece of, you know, flame or fire over their heads. And they begin speaking in tongues, languages that they had not learned, that, that were unfamiliar to them up until that point, uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit arrives. This is not the birth of the Pentecostal church. This is not the entrance or the beginning of the Pentecostal movement. This is the birth of the true church of Jesus Christ. The, uh, you know, I think sometimes we tend to think that Pentecostals have this like corner on the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk about tonight that the Holy Spirit is for all believers. So, the beginning of the church, essentially, with, the, with Pentecost, with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Remember, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and go at the Lord's direction, often based on obedience or disobedience by an individual. But we're going to talk about in just a few minutes how at this point, after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would come into the life of the believer at the point of salvation. Who has 1 Corinthians 12, 13? Anybody have that one? For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Thank you. And who has Ephesians 1, 13 and 14? Get it. Thank you. I'm going to camp out on these two verses for just a second. These two verses to me are just full of so much doctrine about the Holy Spirit that I feel like believers a lot of times miss, and they miss out on the blessing of the Holy Spirit's role. The first part of that of that verse, of, of, the, of that passage, you also, after hearing or listening to the message of truth, having believed. So we hear the gospel, we heard the gospel message, however it was presented to us, we believed. And then the very next thing in that verse is, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So we hear the gospel, we accept Christ, we come to Jesus in faith, and immediately we're sealed. So we hear the message, we believe, and, and the Holy Spirit comes into our life, seals us. We don't, I, I, I 
kind of like old-fashioned things sometimes, and I would think it would have been fun to live in a day when, instead of having nasty, you know, glue in, impregnated in the envelopes that we lick, we had those old-fashioned seals. And this is what I think about for the first part of this. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Back in the day, they'd pour that hot wax on the back of the envelope, take the insignia, mark it, it would harden, and that, that seal told everyone who saw that who authored that letter or who signed this document or who's, who's, uh, whoever this thing belonged to. That was their seal on that piece of document, paper, envelope, whatever. Um, it's the same way with the Holy Spirit. When, we're, when we become a Christian, when we accept Jesus as our Savior, it's like we have this big stamp on us that says, Possession of Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit is the one who marks us with that. How amazing that this verse does not tell us that the seal or the promise of our um, the seal of promise of our salvation is a, a, a sign, an outward sign, like circumcision for the nation Israel. The seal that we are that we're sealed with isn't circumcision. It isn't baptism. It isn't the Lord's Supper. It isn't even spiritual gifts. It's the Holy Spirit Himself sealing us, marking us, saying, this one belongs to me. This one belongs to me. So we believe, we accept Christ as Savior, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. This passage goes on and says, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance? Have any of you ever given earnest money to a builder? Uh, David and I did this almost, gosh, 19, 20 years ago. We went to build our house and we decided to build it from the ground up. I do not know why. We had no idea what we're doing. And we gave this builder a couple of thousand dollars to say, this is our earnest money. This is our pledge that when you finish this house, we're going to buy it from you. We will complete the transaction. The Holy Spirit is like God's earnest money or God's pledge to us with regards to our future inheritance. It's like he gives us the Holy Spirit that says, Look what's coming. This is, I mean, this is going to sort of be my pledge to you until your inheritance as a believer is fulfilled. And the, this passage goes on. When will that take place? With a, review, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. We are sealed with that Holy Spirit. And we are, we are um, in possession of God's earnest or pledge until the point Jesus comes back for believers. He redeems his possession. We are his possession, those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So we're sealed at salvation. We're marked as belonging to Christ. We, we have a guarantee of a future inheritance in heaven with God, and that is in effect until Jesus comes back and takes us home. I think that's an amazing thing. What an amazing thing. We I think we tend to, I tend to, uh, relegate the Holy Spirit to nothing more than a spiritual Jiminy Cricket. You know, he's the spiritual Jiminy Cricket on my shoulder going, you really shouldn't do that, Jenny, or you really should do that, Jenny. He is so much more. So, again, we could talk on and on and on about the Holy Spirit. Quickly, what does the Holy Spirit do? We talked a little bit about this in the passage that we have already read, but just a couple of things. It's on your notes, I believe. He convicts of sin. The Holy Spirit pricks our hearts, convicts us when we are sinning, he ministers to us, comforts us. He glorifies God. The Holy Spirit will never do something that does not bring glory to God. And he provides and enables us to utilize spiritual gifts. So, 
that kind of brings up the question, what are spiritual gifts? Are those talents and abilities we're just naturally born with? No. So I've had people say before to me, uh, one of Noah's spiritual gifts, my son Noah, is um, play the piano. That's a God-given talent or ability, but that is not a spiritual gift. If you want to know what spiritual gifts are, then there are four passages, and my dad taught me this a long time ago. They're easy to remember, these four passages, because two of them are chapter 12 of a book, and the other two are chapter 4 of a book. So the first one is Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, so those are the two 12s, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and then Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. There, in those passages, you will find lists, some are lengthy, some are shorter, of actual spiritual gifts, administration, preaching, healing. Now, you know, if you read these passages, and we're not going to get into a big uh, um, theological discussion about whether certain gifts, the sign gifts, are still active today. As a body of believers, Wake Chapel stance is that the sign gifts, meaning tongues and healing, are not active today. Particularly tongues was we believe that that was utilized to validate the message of the messenger. Well, we have God's word to validate the message. We don't need a, a tongue being spoken in order to do that. But I'll leave that to you guys to, to tear into and come up with your own conclusions. But you can read about what the spiritual gifts are in those four passages. Now, I talked a whole lot really fast about the Holy Spirit. So questions, comments, thoughts? I just find it interesting, and we didn't discuss it to that extent, uh, about the with the Holy Spirit coming on, there was approximately 3,000 people at that point. And that's about the same amount of people that died when we were talking about in the uh, wilderness at the uh, time that they were worshiping the Lord. Yeah, right, right. About the same amount of people just down. So they were lost as far as Jesus saved. That's right. You mentioned it, uh, the, the saving of the 3,000. After Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit comes, Peter who we're still talking about, gets up, preaches another great sermon, and 3,000 were saved that day. Um, so you're absolutely right. That is interesting. I hadn't thought about that being sort of a mirror image of the number lost in the wilderness. Any other thoughts, questions? It's been a lot of time, but again, um, I feel like sometimes I feel like sometimes I, um, I, don't, I, wouldn't, I don't want to say I'm afraid of the Holy Spirit, but I feel like we, you know, we're, we don't want to be labeled you know, uh, by a certain, you know, oh, that person's very Pentecostal, or that person puts too much emphasis on the Holy Spirit. But I think, you know, the Holy Spirit is obviously part of the Trinity for a reason, so we need to know what his role is, and anyway, I think it's important to know. So the second key event in the life of Peter was apostle to the Jews. Initially, after the, revi- the arrival of the Holy Spirit, Peter ministers to Jews and Gentiles alike. But as time moves on, God calls him to focus his attention on the Jews or the circumcision. Who has Galatians 2, 7 and 8? But on the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. Thank you. So this is Peter speaking in Galatians after his conversion, saying, I was entrusted to minister primarily to the Gentiles and empowered by God to do so, just as Peter um, was empowered to minister to the Jews. And an example of that was, you know, 
was pre- it began with immediately after um, Pentecost, preaching to the Jews and these 3,000 coming to faith right away. Uh, the key relationship here is that God always spares a faithful remnant of his people. And by his people, I do not mean us as believers. I mean the Jewish nation, Israel. God always spares a faithful remnant. Is a remnant. Israel as a nation had rejected God. It rejected the prophets, John the Baptist, Jesus and even the Holy Spirit and his power, God had not given up on Israel, even though Israel seemed to have given up as a nation on God. And one evidence of this is the fact that he dedicated an apostle to the Jews. He wasn't like he just said, that's it, I'm done, you people, I'm going after the Gentiles now, you know, you're on your own. He still had one of his own ministering to his the apple of his eye. No matter how wicked and unbelieving the Jewish nation has been, will be, God still preserves this remnant of faithful, believing Jews. He has done so since the time of Abraham, and he will continue to do so until his second coming. We know that when Jesus comes back and fulfills the Davidic covenant, he has a kingdom, and that kingdom is Israel. And we will be coming with him. We're going to talk more about that next week. But he will have a kingdom. And so it's not as if all the Jews can turn their back on God and there, there are no more believing Jews. He will preserve that remnant. That makes sense? We're going to move really quickly, you know, because there's not much, you know, doctrine or anything with the life of Paul, but, you know, that was sarcastic. So we're going to move right into Paul. Our first encounter with Saul, who would later be called Paul, is not a very good one. Remember last week we were talking about the stoning of Stephen and as the men were casting off their, their uh, cloaks and coats to begin picking up rocks to kill Stephen, they laid those coats and cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. And so we're going to pick up with that scene with our first reference. Who has Acts 7, 59 to chapter 8, verse 3? And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. A devout man carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, Hailing men and women committed them to Thank you. The stoning of Stephen seemed to be a lightning rod for this onslaught of increased persecution of the early church. It's almost like it was like in like this fever mob frenzy where they're like, Well, we got rid of Stephen, let's see what else we can do. And Saul was pretty much leading the charge. Going throughout house, 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 taking men, women, binding them, dragging them off to prison. Um, And I'm sure, you know, I mean, this was a pretty violent act. He was, I'm sure, you know, um, he wasn't very gentle in the way he was doing this. He was, he was um, very vehement in his opposition to this early church and wanted nothing more than to extinguish this movement. As uh, the New American Standard says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. Who is this man, Saul? How do we know about Saul? Does, does anybody know how we know who he was and what his credentials were? Tells us. He tells us, that's right. In one of his epistles, in Philippians, uh, Paul himself tells us 
what his credentials were. Now, this was after his conversion, but this is what he says. Who has Philippians 3, 4 to 7? Mm -hmm. Okay. So I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Thank you. So he describes, here is my pedigree. I'm a, a, a circumcised the eighth day. I'm a Jew. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, I am a Pharisee. I'm a persecutor of that. I was. This is him you know, saying I was at the time. A persecutor of the early church. With regards to the law, now we know he wasn't perfect, but blameless. He was meticulous in his following of the Mosaic law. So this is who Saul was before he became Paul. So the first key event here is the conversion of Saul. Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus is nothing short of miraculous. Now this is the long passage for the night. Is that you? There, I don't think there's too many hard names in there. Usually I try to warn you. Um, Acts 9, 1-18. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? asked Saul. Or Saul asked him. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias, thank you. Um, the Lord called uh, to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias said, answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to, to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he gained his strength. Thank you. That was a long passage. So the, here's the scene. 
Saul is just seething with, with um, hatred, hatred for these believers, this early church. It's called in this passage the way. If you read the New Testament, primarily in Acts, believers weren't called Christians until Antioch, and so they were called followers of the way. And so Saul has his, his mandate. He's got to extinguish as many of these as he can. He goes to the high priest and says, can I have some letters so that when I get to Damascus, anybody I find who claims to be this, a believer, a follower of Jesus, I can drag them, bind them, arrest them, and drag them back to Jerusalem to be tried. And so uh, the high priest gives him these letters. He's on his way to Damascus to just wreak havoc on the believers in Damascus. And he is stopped with a supernatural encounter with Jesus. He hears a voice. He sees a flash of lightning. Jesus identifies himself to Saul. I am Jesus who you are persecuting. The, it's not just a hallucination because the men that are with him hear the, hear the voice as well. They don't see anything, but they hear the voice. And then this, you know, this event is just, it totally, it radically affects uh, Saul physically, emotionally, spiritually. He doesn't eat, he doesn't drink, he can't see. And he's taken to an inn reason I think this is funny on Straight Street to the house or not an well the house of Judas on Straight Street. Why I just think it's interesting like why that was included as a detail. I don't know. Um, and uh, so while he's there, he's praying, and God God uh, appears to Ananias and says, "Okay, Ananias, uh, you're one of my believers. You're a follower of me. I need you to go to this guy Saul, and you need to talk to him. You need to lay hands on him so that he can regain his sight." And Ananias is like, sure, Lord, sounds like fun. No. He's like, uh, yeah, that guy has a bad reputation. I don't really want to go there. But he, even though he has a bit of hesitation, he's a little reluctant. He questions God a little bit. He is obedient. He goes. Meanwhile, Saul has had this vision of a man named Ananias coming to him, laying hands on him so that he could regain his sight. The two meet. Now, I think it's interesting that, and I may put too much into this. I don't know. But that Ananias, when he comes into the house, he lays hands on him. After laying hands on him, he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, and so immediately he can see. Now, there's some theologians that debate as to whether Saul was really saved, like when he first saw Jesus or if this was like three days of grappling with, you know, what his identity had been up until now. Uh, the idea is, at this point, Saul becomes a believer. He becomes a follower of Christ. He sees physically. He also sees spiritually. He regains spiritual sight. And he is baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, and, I mean, God himself tells Ananias, you got to go. Because I, how does he say it? Um, where is it? Um, he is a chosen instrument of mine. What? An awesome thing to have God say about one of us. He is that person is a chosen instrument of mine. So this encounter obviously radically changes Saul. Saul goes from being the chief persecutor of the early church to probably the greatest evangelical missionary the world has ever known. That is something only God can do. We're going to keep on rolling. This time's getting away from us. The second key event. We're not going to reread this verse in or this passage in Galatians two. But we already mentioned it. Paul is called to be minister to the Gentiles. The very fact that God ordained that the gospel could be offered outside of Israel to Gentiles is the reason we're standing here tonight. Um, that's a pretty amazing thing.
a couple of key, two key, is it just two? Yeah, two key relationships here. Um, the first one is uh, dispensation, the dispensation of grace. Now, before I started doing this, I'd heard the term, we live in the dispensation of grace, but I didn't know what in the world a dispensation was, so I did some research. And a dispensation is basically the way in which God interacts with mankind during a specific time in history. Most theologians believe that there's roughly, now some say there's eight, some say there's six, but generally there are held to be about seven dis different dispensations from beginning of time until Jesus' second coming, until Jesus' return. And do not write these down. If you want me to tell you to, I'll email it to you, but this is what they are. The, the dispensation, and you can kind of figure out in your mind as you go through the history that we've gone through, which, who, what members of this highway of life were probably in this dispensation. Dispensation of innocence, obviously starting with Adam and Eve. The dispensation of conscience. The dispensation of human government. That was around Noah. Uh, the dispensation of promise. Uh, the dispensation of the law. The dispensation of grace. And the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. From the giving of the Mosaic law to Moses in the wilderness... Until just after Jesus' death, the nation Israel was under the dispensation of law. They were required to follow the law. They were required to worship God in the temple through the priests, and they received messages from God through God's prophets. That is how God communicated with them. After the coming of the, uh, the Holy Spirit, well, after Jesus' death, burial and resurrection, and the coming of the Holy Spirit, this ushered in the dispensation of grace. Forgiveness of sin through Christ's atoning work on the cross is offered now, and it man's chief responsibility and really the primary response is acceptance of this free gift. Remember, beginning now, around this time, the Holy Spirit indwells the believer at the point of salvation, and we enjoy the benefits of God's grace. This, this dispensation of grace continues on now. We continue to live in the dispensation of grace, and this dispensation will conclude with Jesus. Oh, excuse me, with the rapture of the church, which we'll talk about next week. A great deal of Paul's ministry is involved in teaching believers what grace is. Is anybody? Can I just quote Ephesians two eight and nine? Very good. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that any man should boast. The idea of grace is the primary difference between Christianity and every other religion. Other religions focus on man's efforts to get to God, what man does to reach God. Christianity focuses on what God did by sending his Son to bring us to himself. The focus is on what God does, what God has done, not on what we have done or are doing. That is grace. Our works do not save us. Our works do not improve our standing with God, and our works do not guarantee eternity in heaven. The only thing we have to do in order to be saved from our sins is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, accepting his free gift of salvation. That is an amazing thing. And very quickly, the last key relationship, the body of Christ, the idea of the fact that the church, the body of Christ, headed up by Jesus himself, becomes the focus for the rest of the New Testament. The shift begins 
to, to move away from just focusing on the nation Israel to the, uh, the church, the body of Christ. But what is the church, the body of Christ, born on the day of Pentecost, headed by Jesus himself? And we're going to read one more uh, passage really quickly. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 13. For as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Thank you. The body of Christ is something that, that only Christ can invite individuals into. And membership is only based on faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else. Works don't get you into the body. Being a, a, a spiritual grandchild or child, it doesn't matter what your parents believe, doesn't matter what your, your friends believe, doesn't matter how you grow up, if you go to church. Membership in the body of Christ is only based on salvation faith in Jesus Christ. So, we're going to stop there. Woo! One more week. Thanks for hanging. Thank you. Thanks for hanging in there.